Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 264 with Ron Carucci. I think you'll enjoy this chat with Ron because he has some deep research-based insights onto what makes a rise to power successful and not so successful. So you'll learn, one, how resumes and interviews routinely mislead us, two, how to minimize alienation, and three, the four patterns of successful leaders. So if you'd like to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items we've referenced, it's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F264. And while at awesomeatyourjob.com, I hope you'll check out some of our cool stuff. One cool thing I'd point you to is the Gold Nugget email list. So if you'd like to get the insights from Ron and all 263 guests who came before him all the faster, you can sign up at awesomeatyourjob.com and get those insights right to your inbox so you have notes taken for you if you're running or driving and you just can't put pen to paper there. Now, here's Ron's story. Ron is a seasoned consultant with more than 25 years of experience working with CEOs and senior executives of organizations ranging from Fortune 50s to startups in pursuit of transformational change. His consulting has taken him to more than 20 different countries on four continents. He's consulted some of the world's most influential CEOs and executives on issues ranging from strategy to organization to leadership. He's worked extensively in the health sciences, biotech, and healthcare provider sectors, and also in the technology, consumer products, and retail food and beverage industries. Big thanks to Ron for sharing his wisdom with us, and big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. Here is Ron. Ron, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Pete, great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Well, I think the first thing that we've got to cover head on is that you possess a doorknob collection. What's the story here? <laughs> Gosh, you know, you never know how to answer the classic questions that interviewers ask you about. What's an interesting fact about you that nobody would know? And you know, I was looking around my office and I, I looked at these big jars I have of these beautiful antique knobs. And I'm going to put that, knowing that it would bait somebody to ask. So a long time ago, as an art endeavor to give a gift to somebody whose life has been about opening doors, I, made, I created this beautiful sculpture, this sort hmm. of glass sculpture. Basically, basically, a beautiful, tall glass jar filled with all kinds of antique doorknobs from hundreds of years ago, 50 years ago, every era. So you see you know, decades and decades of stories. And the metaphor for me was, you know, imagine all of the hands that touched these knobs over the years and the, the entrances people made into rooms and all the conversations that ensued. And so I made them for people whose life was about opening doors, was about you know, creating access, was creating doorways for people. And then people started asking me to make them. And so I, you know, probably I, for, for people where I felt like it was warranted, I, I made them. And then, I, and then I made a giant one for myself because I thought I, I want one of these, but I made it so large that the glass jar broke and it exploded. And I got really depressed over that. So then I made three little ones out of that same set of co- that collection. And so those are sitting on in my office, a coffee table by the couch. And so they're just a wonderful reminder of the stories of our life came long before us and they will go on long after us. And many people had to open doors for us. And there are many people relying on us to open doors for them. And it's a great reminder to think about you know being part of a much bigger story than the one, the one we just see. 
Well, that is cool. And you got me thinking, you know, I spent a lot of time uh, looking at doors recently because we just bought this home and we've done some renovation. I wanted my home office to have some sound blocking, you know, studio-esque. And uh, I did all this research and looking at, at different doorknobs and, and their their impact on on the blocking of, of sound, which is funny. It's like the opposite <laughs> metaphor. <laughs> Do not pass through here. <laughs> I, I need the quiet for a good recording. And so I'm intrigued. So, you know, do you have a, a preference when it comes to an appearance of a finish of brass or copper or satin nickel or polished chrome? What, where? There's glass ones in there. There's crystal ones. There's levers. There's ones that came right, you can tell right out of the 50s and, you know, the houses I grew up in. There are door knockers in there. There are skeleton keys. Yeah. There's just all kinds of, there's wooden ones from the 1800s in there. There's ones from fancy large doors. There's ones from cabinet doors. So yeah, it's quite a a variety collection. That's wild. Well, well, thank you for sharing. That is intriguing. (laughs) And it kind of sets up a cool metaphor here. So I want to talk mostly about Rising to Power, the the book, but could you maybe orient us a little bit? You know, what's your company, Navalent, all about? And am I pronouncing it correctly? You are. Okay, And I'm glad to tell you about us. So I and my colleagues at Navalent get to spend our days traipsing through the, the hallways of all kinds of organizations, small ones, startup ones, mid-cap ones, large global powerhouses, you know, alongside the journeys of leaders on some pursuit of change, some pursuit of transformation, some pursuit of something better improved or get out of some ditch and helping them construct very complicated journeys of change, whether those are strategic or organizational or cultural or their own personal leadership. We helped, you know, carefully curate the, the journey with them so that they could actually, you know, be successful and reach the aspirations that they dream of reaching. Cool. All right. Well, it sounds like my kind of place. <laughs> <laughs> well, so now I want to dig into your book. You know, it's called Rising to Power, which is a juicy title. So first tells you, what is the main idea and, and what is it not? Is it about uh, dictators of uh, coming into their own? <laughs> No, it's not about uh, that. We thought we might find them in the research. It's, a, it's a based on a 10-year longitudinal study of about 2,800 people who are all pursuing positions of broader influence you know, in their lives, mostly at the higher ranks of organizations, but it's a variety. So I know, I know your audience is mostly in their mid-30s and professionals. And so I think that the points in the book certainly apply to all of us in that all of us are pursuing greater influence, right? We're all, we all want to have greater impact. We all want to reach more people and leave, leave positive things behind in our work and make a difference. And we've known for a long time that you know, more than half of those who take on positions of broader influence in organizations fail in their first 18 months. And we've known that for 20 years, and it's just become the new normal. You know, re- recruiters love it because it's an annuity for them. But for everybody else, there's a tremendous amount of carnage and waste in our path, and unnecessary. So the book be, you know, it began on a, a personal level when somebody that I had been working with called and I was assuming calling to check in and I was going to hear about great things they had done and they had been fired. They had been started in a, a much bigger job about 10 months earlier and you know, everybody saw them as having great potential and was going to go up a distance and could make great impact. And so I couldn't imagine why it was we could have misjudged his potential so greatly. And that I wanted to go back in and find out what happened. And that investigation led us to the 10-year study to find out that he 
was really just one more statistic. Thought, gosh, we can do better. This is insane that we just accept this as, as normal. Why is it that people who look so breathtakingly wonderful in the middle suddenly become disasters when you move them up? Makes no sense. And it turns out, you know, after 2,700 interviews and a lot of digging and, you know, we, we, we sort of stopped about 100 liters in mid-ascent to see if we could watch in slow motion what was going on to find out what's causing these people to, to go tap dancing in these landmines and how can we help them not do that. So it was a wildly instructive study, difficult in some of the things it revealed and that, you know, it's a wonder any of them are succeeding given all the landmines companies put in their way. And it was inspiring to see that there are many leaders not only rising and thriving, but sticking the landing and having great impact when they get there and being able to isolate what it was they were doing that enabled them to be successful. So it was a pretty robust experience to study all that. Well, Ron, this is so juicy and I'm so intrigued. And so I'd say, hey, just take us there on the story in terms of it with particular emphasis, maybe on kind of the most leveraged forces, both in terms of what we see in the organizational landscape and in terms of of the actions folks are taking, you know, the mistakes that seem to trip folks up again and again. Well, one of the most common ones, Pete, is right in the very beginning when we start beginning to prepare people or invite them to bigger jobs. And this is any one of us who go on job interviews or who conduct job interviews can fall into this trap. So, you know, the, the two most common devices we use to make decisions about people's jobs are the two least reliable, the resume and the interview, right? But we're still using those mechanisms to make choices. And people walk through our resume and we tell them stories. But but one of the most dangerous parts of that conversation begins to sound something like, wow, look at that great team you led to that result. That's what we need. Or look at this brand you built. That's what we need. Or my gosh, look at the sales team you were able to drive such results through. That's what we need. And whether you're on the asking or receiving end of that question, you sh- a red flag should go off. The minute someone starts implying that there is this past set of successes that you're meant to come and repeat. Okay. Um, because the implication is that you have a formula, you have a recipe, you have some tried and true approach that you should come apply here. And that is almost always a setup for failure because it devoids of any context, right? And so somebody comes in, starts slapping on their formula, it starts not to work, I start slapping harder. Then I get frustrated, people start backing away, and the and failure set in motion. And so never assume that any success you've had is repeatable. Never assume anybody else's success that they've had is something you should want repeated. There may be wisdom, principles, ideas, things they gain from the experience that they might apply to the next chapter, but it is never a formulaic recipe that they should just simply repeat. And so how you ask the question and how you help them adapt or how you help yourself adapt your successful experiences to the environment you're going to is critical. And that starts with you understanding that you have to adapt yourself to the environment as much as you have to change it. It's a two-way process. And most people who believe they have this mythical mandate to repeat some past success skip the part of their own, their own need to adapt. Wow. That's it's fascinating. And it's, it's sort of intuitive. Like as you're speaking, it's like, oh, okay, I'm not seeing the problem, not seeing the problem. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. You know, because it, it's just so sort of natural to do just that. It's like, we're looking for someone who has done this. You have done this. Therefore, you will do this. And, and we're excited. And so 
you're saying that that is by no means predictive. And, and you, you've shared some stats earlier. In fact, the majority of the time, it's not going to work out the way you had hoped. Uh, just having done it in and of itself is not predictive. Mm-hmm. If you isolate what competence, right? And that's what more scientific approaches to interviews are, are showing that if you, de- if you show a demonstration of competence, tenacity, problem solving, collaboration, working with difficult people, you know, if you can help people extract what was good about what they did, but contextualize that to the situation they're going to be in, that's predictive. Just having checked the box off, even if they've done it three times in their career, is not at all predictive that they can do it again in your environment or your context or in your particular culture. And sending them the implied message that you believe they can, and in fact, that's what you're hiring them for, is in fact almost always a setup for failure. Okay, intriguing. Can can you speak more about this? That message is a setup for failure in what way and why how? In that I'm telling you, just come here and repeat what you've done. So I don't come in looking to learn. I don't come in looking to understand how did the problem you're in get here? How did the situation that seems to need what I bring arise? Who caused it? Who are the people here? What have they tried? And how do I need to build build credibility with them, build respect with them? How do I need to adapt to this environment in order to be credible here, in order for my ideas to prevail? If I simply come in and start doing well, my first thing is always that I, you know, starting these task forces, or I've always gone out and just gotten this customer segmentation data, or I've always just gone out and this is the technology I use, I'm bringing this technology in. And just without any sense for the havoc I'm wreaking, how others are metabolizing this, what ideas they might have, without any sense of the people who have to live with what I'm building, why would they want to, because now it's an indictment. Right. All you're doing is judging and you're right. you did it wrong. Let me show you how it's really done. Watch and learn, guys. <laughs> exactly. Pete, that's the posture. <laughs> and how often do the one thing you hear that people get most sick of new people is when they begin every sentence for the first four months. Well, when I was at Johnson and Johnson, what we did was or well, JJ, what we did was, you know, so you got hired because you came from this iconic brand. So well, what well, Microsoft, what we did was and all I hear. And the minute you say that name, I stop listening. And you, and it's in, but within 10 weeks, it's, you can almost bet casino money on this. People in the break room saying, if I hear Microsoft one more time, if I hear Johnson Johnson one more time, <laughs> I'm going to throw up. <laughs> now, it could be that anything that followed that statement is brilliant. It could be that the idea is perfectly suited. Nobody's going to hear it. Right. And so, and then I guess a more diplomatically suave, astute way to even if you wanted to share that, is maybe just have a bit more of a Socratic or, or curious questioning approach in terms of, have we tried to do this? Or what are our thoughts around that? Exactly. Absolutely. Ask questions, be curious, find out what they've learned. And if you have to offer an idea, offer an idea. The origins of the idea are irrelevant. Right. Let the idea stand on its own merit. If you think that talking about the last big company you came from as the place you saw the idea work, is the basis of its credibility, then why do I care about the idea? Perfect. Because okay. what everybody's going to say is, that's great, we're not J&J. Yes. That's great, we're not Microsoft. Mm-hmm. Right? And so all I'm telling you is I'm judging you because you're not. Awesome. Okay, th- that's very instructive. So there's a whole sort of cluster theme associated with, hey, you did that there, we want you to repeat it, and then you try to repeat it, and then all sorts of, of havoc can unfold with, with regard to you're annoying people because you keep mentioning that. You're not a, having a posture of curiosity and learning and, and adaptation. So, so that, that's sort of one cluster of, of trouble 
that emerges there. Are there some other findings that are, are noteworthy in the study? Well, so the other thing that is that, you know, when you start getting frustrated it, with, the pro- with your brain ideas not working, you start to judge people. You start to walk around saying things like, how are these people made any money here? Or you go to your hiring manager and you say, you didn't tell me it was this bad, right? And then the halo becomes a noose. You start to hang yourself. And as people are backing away from you, you don't realize you're becoming isolated, right? And that is sure signs of death. And of course, then the classic statement we all hear when they have to boot your butt out is, well, he just wasn't a fit. Yeah. <laughs> right? I mean, it's, it's, it's almost so cliche how predictable it is. The, the other one is when your whole relationship landscape changes, right? So let's imagine you rise up to a position where the people who used to be your peers now report to you. The people who used to be your bosses are now your peers. People who used to report to you aren't anywhere near you anymore. And the entire relational landscape changes. And people either treat you like you've changed or they try and treat you like you haven't changed, right? And so all of those boundaries, if you don't intentionally renegotiate them, they become really awkward. And so people either start expecting to curry favor with you or they, they start withholding information from you because they're not sure they can trust you now. And you feel like an literally alienated. You feel like an alien. You feel like this, you just, wait, did I just arrive on a different planet? And people are looking at you funny or they, you walk into a room and they stop talking or they walk into your office and they start asking really innuendo kinds of questions, trying to get information out of you or, you know, leverage a level of intimacy they had with you before to try and get special treatment. And all of that relational disruption can, for some people who don't, who aren't ready for it, can really be some can be paralyzing, can be really uncomfortable, can feel really off-balancing. And people either make the mistake of going native and getting all in, or they pull away from people in several relationships, right? Rather than saying, okay, how does this relationship need to be redefined in my new world? What parts of how we used to interact can we keep? And what parts have to change? And really having healthy, honest, forward-looking conversations so that you don't unnecessarily sever relationships or unnecessarily go native and, and get exploited. Well, Ron, this is so good. It shows that you've had a lot of conversations with a lot of people and have zeroed in on patterns. And there's there's a real realness and, and practicality to it. So good. Is there more? Well, sure. So I think the last one I'd offer, and this may be for some of your listeners who maybe are aspiring to bigger jobs or maybe who just got one. But the problem becomes when you're leading a large organization, right? So that, that everybody that you lead is not directly touching you or near you or physically with you, where you may have people you lead in other locations around the country or maybe even around the world, or there's several levels between you and everybody you lead. The biggest alienation for many leaders there is that now their life plays out on a jumbotron, right? They're, they're now this, this, big, this bigger than life version of them. I tell these leaders, just assume that there's a, a megaphone strapped to your mouth 24-7. Everything you say and do is amplified. Everything you do is, has meaning attached to it. If you walk down the hallway fast, oh, she's angry. If you walk out of a meeting <laughs> scratching your head, oh my God, she's upset. You know, that's, people will just read cues. They, they could be wildly irrational and accurate, but just know that you're now on the jumbotron in a way for people to concoct you, people to create versions of you, people to, you now have folklore being told about you, you know, in the hinterlands and places you've never been before. People are going to quote things you said you never said. Like John said, <laughs> well, I never said. And for many leaders, that just can be so off-putting and disorienting because they don't understand how is this happening. It's just the, the price of leadership. It's the price of working in organizations where people have to make up a story if they don't know the answer. And so they have to interpret reality in ways that make sense to them, even if it's not rational. And there are ways 
to counterbalance some of this, you know, with how transparent you are, how you communicate, how you choose to be accessible, and how you make people know you in ways that mitigate their need to make you up. But you can't get get away from all of it. And too many leaders try and set out on making sure that they neutralize all of that stuff. And of course, it can't be done. It's a full-time job. So just getting used to the higher altitude and and the, the thinness of the oxygen up there, you need to take more breaths, just like climbing a mountain, you have to get used to the fact that there are some elements of how you lead and how you're perceived that are simply out of your control. Right. Well, so maybe if you get sort of one hopeful note within that, is you said you there are a number of things you can do. Do you have an, sort of an 80-20 prescription in terms of, and this is probably one that has a lot of bang for the buck when you find yourself there? Well, I think, you know, best defense is a good offense, right? There, you know, if there's important messaging you need to get out, if there's important influence you want to have, be vulnerable. Your vulnerability and your humanity are your two greatest assets. Let people know you and let people know that you know you're flawed. You know, talk about the places you know you're not good. Talk about the things you're working on. Talk about your own personal values, what you want for the group. Be accessible in a human way to people. That way, you're not having to, you know, so if you have people in countries around the world or locations around the country that you can't always get to, I mean, obviously use video conference when you can so you can be seen versus just written communications. Do whatever you can to create cohesive intimacy, acknowledging the distance that's there without having to be physically present and down the hallway and be able to pop in to everybody you lead. That's excellent. And I can recall in some of the early days of my career, I remember, you know, I was working at Bain, starting a new case, you know, you've got a, a manager who's, you know, almost a partner and you're working alongside and, and you sort of talk a little bit about professional development goals. And I say, oh yeah, I'm kind of looking at to work on this, this, and this. And then he just said, okay, yeah, great. Thank you. I'll keep that in mind. And here's some things I'm working on. It was like, it was just so, it was like, my mind was blown, yeah. <laughs> you know, in the sense of that level of humility and vulnerability, it just made me go, whoa. This person's real. And I just felt instantly like, oh, I can talk to this guy about stuff. And instead of having to worry about, you know, the things that are permissible and impermissible to be shared with them. Yep. Well, that's one of the reasons why Bain continues to get voted in the top three companies to work for, right? You have leaders who really, people know they can. And in professional services, whether you can have all kinds of cutthroat rivalry and all kinds of horrible individualistic, cannibalistic behavior, it's wonderful that they have worked so hard. I've always thought, gosh, if I was, if I didn't have my own consulting firm, Bain would be one of the places I'd love to work. Yeah, well, it was it was a great experience in many ways. Yep. But I want to touch base on. So, I think a number of listeners will say, okay, not yet an executive. Uh, those sound like interesting and problems that I hope to have <laughs> some years down the line. What are some of your pro tips for what can just convey this guy or gal is a rising executive and can set folks up for success in? seeing that altitude sooner rather than later. Well, and the reality is that the, the, the four dimensions that we found in the data, these four patterns, no matter how we cut the data up, almost 100 regression analyses, these four patterns were the continued hallmark of those whose influence stuck, whose impact was sustained. And they're patterns of behavior and influence we can all use, right? it doesn't matter where you are. So the first one we called breadth. This was people who understood that the organization was made up of many parts, right? So when you get to the top, you can glue it together. But even from where you're at, you know, there is some border, there's some other department, there's some colleague, there's somebody across a moat that you have to work with, that relies on you, that you have to collaborate with. Do you understand 
how to bring cohesion where there's fragmentation. Or organizations are natural fragmenting parts. They are naturally pulled apart with centrifugal force. Can you cross a border? Do you know how to create connections across boundaries? Can you appreciate the world? You know, if you're in finance, do you understand what sales has to do? If you're in marketing, do you understand what supply chain has to do? You know, who are the counterparts around the organization who you tend to get annoyed with? Or you tend to, you know, you tend to be frustrated by and think, gosh, if they knew how much havoc they wreaked in my life. Well, the chances are you're probably wreaking the same havoc in their life. So have you crossed those borders and understood how your work fits into a larger story? The more you can see how the whole organization works, the more general a contributor you can be. The second one we call context. So this is the person who comes in and reads the tea leaves, right? Are you curious? Are you asking questions? Do you know the trends headed to disrupt your industry? Do you know what the competitive moves are? Regardless of where you are in the organization, do you know why your customers are choosing you? Do you understand the landscape on which you sit? And are you curiously asking questions to learn what's happening around you and why? Can you read context? Can you read the context of your culture? and why certain norms and behaviors are accepted and others aren't. The third one we call choice. So this is the, the ability to make really hard calls. You know, leadership is being dis- able to disappoint people. That's what it means, right? So can you say no? Can you narrow the focus of an organization? Can you prioritize people's work so that you aren't overcommitting them? You, you never walk in, around an organization and hear somebody say, wow, we just have too few priorities. <laughs> Gosh, we, we're, we're way too focused. Right. You, you hear is, you know, my gosh, how many more things are you going to put on my plate? Um, how, you know, how much resource do you think I have? Overcommitted, overextended, underfocused, priorities du jour, changing priorities by the day. And so great choice makers can make hard calls. They can narrow people's focus. That's so powerful. They can choose what to work on and choose what to say no to. And it's not about saying no to bad ideas. Any dummy can do that. But say no to even great ideas because other great ideas have to prevail. Absolutely. You know, we, we had uh, Greg McEwen who wrote Essentialism uh, back in episode 38, and he said that originally the word priority uh, was never pluralized. Right, it wasn't. Yep. There's only one. Yep, I love that book. I actually interviewed Greg a few times from my Forbes column. Great guy, and a great book. And the last one we called Connection. You know, not surprisingly, these are the relationships that you have with people above you, alongside you, and below you. You know, all around you, direct reports, peers, and bosses, you've built relationships of deep trust, deep credibility, and reliability. And one of the key differentiating factors of of these stakeholder relationships were not so much asking, who do I need things from? But these people set themselves apart by actively seeking ways to help others succeed. They actively ask the question, who can I help? Who needs what I have to offer? And so, you know, if you haven't done it, sit down and map your stakeholders, the key relationships in your organization, regardless of where you sit, and whose success can you contribute to? Who can you say to, how can I help you do better what you're doing today? And people who actively seek to put others' needs on their agenda, those are the folks that get remembered and get given opportunities to give have greater impact. Oh, that is so good. That is so good. Ron, this is excellent overview, which I know has a lot of depth underneath it. But uh, tell me, is there anything else you really want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about a few of your favorite things? Uh, No, I think we're good. Okay, cool. Well, then can you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? My mentor, she's still my mentor, you know, but has been for 30 something years. Early in my career, she said to me, nothing is irrevocable except death. And the reminder is every day we get second chances. We can get we get do-overs, not on everything, but on many more things than we give ourselves access to. And if we could free ourselves from the from the fears, the anxieties, the 
projections have judgments on others about us. If we could shed those, we might make more courageous and optimal choices. So remember, you know, it's okay to skin your knees. You get do-overs. Thank you. And how about a favorite study or experiment or bit of research? So my favorite Jim Collins book is actually one of his most obscure books, but I loved How the Mighty Fall. It was sort of this interesting le- leftover bit of research, but on the on patterns of arrogance and failure. It's a brilliant piece of work, and I, it's one of my favorite pieces of research. Oh, thank you. Well, uh, my next question is about a favorite book. Is it the same, or you have another? I think uh, I think David White's book, Crossing the Unknown Sea, should be required reading for the planet. I love the notion of work as a pilgrimage of life. Thank you. And how about a favorite tool, something that helps you be awesome at your job? I'm, these days, I'm a big fan of Zoom. I know we're not on it, but I just love Zoom. It's uh, all the cool things it can do to connect people, to com- you know, to communicate people, to capture great conversations. It's really cool. Agreed. And, and how about a favorite habit? <laughs> Gosh, my wife would say, how are you going to answer that one? Uh, <laughs> you know, one of them is, um, I, don't, I don't know, you, a habit or a ritual, but down the hallway uh, from my office in the conference room where our, our kitchen is, I have this collection of coffee mugs. People are going to... Now people are going to think I'm a, I'm a hoarder mm. in my dorm. <laughs> but they're mugs that I've, I've gathered from all over the world, you know, from different experiences with different trips, different people. But each of them is attached to a person or an experience I had with a friend or someone in my family or a colleague. And when I, so when I have coffee in the morning, when I pick that mug, it, it forces me to remember somebody really important to me and to be grateful. And to start my day remembering that my life is bigger than just the one I, the story I'm in or whatever challenges I had that day. And to start by being thankful for the people in my story that make my life as rich and meaningful as, as it is. That's awesome. Thank you. And, and do you have a particular nugget you share in your, your consulting or speaking or writing that really seems to connect and, and resonate? Folks are maybe quoting yourself to you. That's an authentic quote as opposed to a, a mythic quote that's uh, mistakenly ascribed to executives. I've never said that. <laughs> I think it's a question that I ask people that it can be a little bit off balancing, but I love to ask it when I'm about to start any one of our diagnostic works, when I'm about to go do my MRI on the organization. And I love to ask it, so what am I going to hear? Because I love to both test their predictive nature and their intuitive insight, but they love trying to guess before they get the data. I wonder what they're going to hear. And of course, as they begin to presume what it is I'm going to hear, they begin to, they're forced to test assumptions around, why do I think that? And I wonder what he's going to hear and how do I know? And so I love to put people on notice to say, okay, let's go see what I actually do here. But it forces them to test assumptions they've taken for granted, often of which is some other reason why they had to call me in the first place. And Ron, if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? I'd love them to come to do a couple of things. One, at our website, Navalent, N-A-V-A-L-E-N-T.com, we've got a great quarterly magazine on leadership and organizations and teams and all kinds of fun stuff they can, um, we'd love to have you subscribe to. It's free. We have a really exciting virtual summit coming up called Leading Through Turbulence. And wow, what a lineup we've got. Uh, John Height and Dan Pink and Dory Clark and Whitney Johnson and Nilifer Merchant and Mark Crowley and uh, CEOs of big companies and s- entrepreneurial CEO startups and thought leaders of all kinds. About 25 speakers in all. It's March 5th through 9th. So come sign up for that. It's also free for the week of March 5th through 9th. You can also, for a nominal fee, buy an all-access pass for a year that gets you a free coaching conversation with one of us from Navalent and gets you a free ebook and all kinds of stuff. So we'd love to have your 
your listeners join us for that. It's going to be a great set of conversations and really rich content. We also have a free ebook. So if you're learning, if you're facing some change in your life and leading change of, of some kind is important, if you come to navalent.com slash transformation, we have a free ebook on leading transformation that you would find, I think, interesting and, and enjoyable. So I'm also at Twitter at Ron Carucci and I'm on LinkedIn as well. And do you have a final challenge or call to action you'd issue to folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs? Yes. Go ask five people for feedback on how they experience you and make them tell you the truth. Some of them will go, oh, you're great, you're great, you're great. They'll tell you what you want to hear, but say, no, really. What's one thing I could do better to help you do a better job? Go ask people for how they experience you as a colleague. No, and I really like that. And so we say, how they experience you. Could you give us a few articulations of that? Because my hunch is some folks would say, uh, what, what do you mean? I think you're a cool dude, Ron. Thanks. So what's the one thing I do that most annoys you? All right. What's the one thing I do that makes your life easier? What's the one thing you think that if I improved could make my career better? What's the one thing everybody else is talking about me behind my back and rolling their eyes about that no one thinks I know? Perfect. I love it. Well, Ron, thank you so much for, for taking this time. This is, is thought-provoking, it's powerful, and I'm really excited to put some of this uh, into action myself and some eye-opening questions and, and things to, to go after. So I wish you tons of luck with the book and your consulting and the summit and, and all the cool things you're doing there. Pete, it's been a real pleasure. Thanks so much for chatting with me. Good to be with you. I think it was really powerful to hear Ron mention that your vulnerability and your humanity are your two greatest assets. And I think that applies you know, particularly when you are getting more senior and, and folks are, are whispering about you and, and thinking things about you. But applies right now, and that's a sort of a theme we've heard associated with being upfront about your intentions and, and where you're coming from and your biases and why you think the way you think and what is something that you're not quite sure about with this idea that you're putting forward potent stuff. So I hope you dug that and his other tidbits. And again, if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items we've referenced, it's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F264. Hope to catch you there in peace. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. <laughs>